When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This program is a paid commercial announcement from Jacob Media Partners and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. Today's program is pre-recorded. This is Women to Watch. I don't think you can truly change for the better in a lasting, meaningful way unless it is driven by self-acceptance. Women to Watch, sharing the real stories of the most accomplished women in the world. To rise above all of the noise and fulfill every last one of your dreams. Be inspired by women from across the globe. True philanthropy comes from living from the heart of yourself and giving what you have been given. Who are encouraging more women to pursue their dreams. What I know to be true is that women were always meant to lead. And by shining a light on those doing it well today, my hope is that more women will find their own voice. Now, here's the owner, founder, and host of Women to Watch, Sue Rocco. Hello and welcome back to another week of Women to Watch. I'm Sue Rocco and it's great to be here with all of you. Before I welcome my guests this evening, I want to remind you to stay with us during the breaks to hear from our very own watch team of contributors. These women leaders bring news, education, and inspiration from their industries to this show each week, and we continue to be grateful for their support and corporate partnerships. As we continue to expand into new markets, we are always looking for additional corporate partners. So if you're interested in being a part of the show, feel free to email taylor at womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net, N-E-T. And don't forget to download the podcast each week and sign up for our newsletter at womentowatch.net as well. Now I am very honored to welcome to the show Gail Samak Laman. Gail is a storyteller and author of some very fascinating books uh, about women in the Middle East, and I'm so grateful um, to have her on the show this evening. Gail, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I wanted to start with this quote because I think it it speaks a little bit to your beginning uh, and your background. Uh, And this is something your mom used to say to you. On a scale of major tragedies, yours is not a three. Um, I love that. I heard heard you share that in another interview. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about your mom and her influence on you uh, when you were little. Sure. I mean, I think my mother was uh, and is my role model. She uh, actually was a single mom who worked two jobs. So my mom worked at the phone company during the day and sold Tupperware at night. I was a voracious reader, always followed politics. I think gave me the news bug early on before I, I'm not a journalist now, but, but when, when I was working in news, I think it was really her influence, but really just 
watching her and the kind of happy warrior that she determined to be, even when things were really tragic, shaped so much of how I see the world. I grew up in a community of single moms that was underestimated from the outside, people who were seen as, you know, kind of otherized by lots of people, um, but who fought every single day and sacrificed so much for us to have uh, every possibility that we could. And I really took that seriously because I knew how much work, how much sacrifice uh, went into my mother being able to provide me every opportunity possible. And I actually wrote an Atlantic piece many moons ago about how my mother lied about our address when I was a kid so that I could go to a better public school. And she just taught me that education was everything and it was our way out of being, you know, upper lower class or however you want to call that, right, in, in PG County, Maryland. In, did you feel, um, Gail, that the this influence from mom, being a single mom, did that put pressure on you to be successful or was it actually more... Um, exciting and a challenge to you no and because you know my mother yes she absolutely had high expectations but i mean i think first of all she got sick with stage four breast cancer when i was 10. so i was a kid when i lost her she was i was 13 uh when she passed and she taught me so much profoundly about looking life in the face and about never looking for an easy way out and about really uh, taking adversity uh, along with the winds. I think she had far fewer winds, but she had a lot of joy. Um, so no, it was much more of a sense of being cheerful and confident and kind of facing the day. Um, even when she was sick, she would never shy away from telling me the truth, but you would never hear her complain. And, and I think that definitely shaped me. Although I complain much more. <laughs> <laughs> you know, 13, when I think of 13 for girls, my gosh, that's probably an age none of us would want to go back to, but it's really a pivotal time for a young girl. And to lose your mom, how did that influence your uh, view about life and how fleeting it, it truly is? Oh, it taught me everything because uh, my mother had always stressed to me that you can't look at life with anything but uh, a direct sense of purpose and push forward no matter what. Uh, even when she was sick, she would talk to me very directly about how sick she was and about that we were living uh, in hope of a little more time. But she would not ever shy away from looking things in the face and being straight about them. And so that balance of being direct and straight and authentic and honest with also being full of hope, that tension, I think, was something that always stayed with me. You know, my, I, you said my, my mother always said on a scale of major world tragedies, yours is not a three. And when I would say something was hard, she'd say, life is hard. You know, mm. give me a break. So no one wanted to hear it uh, in my family growing up uh, at all. And I think absolutely it taught me that we have very little time here and that your days really should matter. Would you say it also eliminated your fear then? <clears throat> because I, I talk often on the show about um, when children are young and parents are keeping secrets from them about things that are happening that truly do matter. Um, I think that creates an anxiety. And for your mom to be so forthright with you, did that help eliminate you know the fear and anxiety? No, I, well, that's a, I think it was later that I really understood the gift that that was. You know, she, I never thought, oh, if I have more time, I would have said, you know, or I would have done 
X or Y, right? Like we were very direct with each other about that. I think it did give me a different perspective on risk because all these people do so much to avoid taking risks in their careers and in their lives. And I think, well, but you have no idea if you're gonna to have tomorrow. Like, why would you, what do you think that tomorrow is gonna to be so different from today? You know, mm -hmm. you have no guarantee that tomorrow's gonna to come. So it's all gonna be over very, very quickly and you won't even remember uh, most of the filler. You'll remember the things you did, the people you loved, or the things that you cannot take with you. Uh, and you really have to keep that in, I think, front of mind. It's difficult to do, but I think it's important to do. We are definitely going to talk about courage and taking risks. You've done that throughout your career. It's it's so incredibly impressive to me. Um, but I want to get a couple other questions in. In 1997, you covered um, presidential politics and public policy issues, and you served as a producer uh, for the first year of This Week with George Stephanopoulos. What can you tell me about the behind the scenes of politics um, that we might not know? You know, politics now is so very much in the corners, right? Uh, but I think at the end of the day, it was funny. I remember in 1994, there were people who had, you know, the Republicans had just won big. And there were people who uh, I knew who said, well, you know, Gail, now everybody has to be a Republican. You know, if you want a job or whatever, I was still very much in high school. But uh, I thought it was, or I guess I was just coming out. And I said, let me tell you something. The people I grew up with, they put phones <laughs> in the government buildings. They run the government printing office. They do the printing at the... Supreme Court in D.C., they're going to be here no matter what, right? So I always thought what was so interesting is everybody talks about changing Washington, but if you come from D.C., right, or if you come from P.G. County, uh, that is a very different way of seeing the world because they're there, we're there, no matter what, right? The political uh, moves come and go, but the infrastructure of who serves uh, as secretaries and printers and phone installers uh, doesn't change. Mm. How about the people, you know, as outsiders, people that are not familiar with um, politics and what goes on in D.C., from our vantage point, of course, at the top of the news is is always um, controversy. And I, I've always wondered this question. If you think that people who go into politics as far as making cr and creating policy um, often go with the right intentions and then lose their way, lose their way because of the, the power that they then hold. I would say this. Um, people do attempt, I think, to do the best that they can, uh, but the system is larger than any one individual, period. And I think there are real and rational incentives that are driving people to do what they do. Right. Uh, and to behave the way they do. And I think until you address the underlying incentives, uh, it'll be very hard to get uh, people and, and system that produces different outcomes. And I think, honestly, you know, the media can um, be very much um, an amplifier, uh, both of what we have in common and also of the differences. Right. I agree. Um, listen, we're going to go into our first break. And when we come back, I'll continue my conversation with Gail Samak Laman author and storyteller. Stay with us for our watch team. We'll be right back. Now the women to watch health watch for health watch. I'm Dr. Marianne Ritchie obesity, a chronic disease that's increasing in prevalence around the globe 
and is a major contributor to poor health. This morning on Your Radio Doctor, we spoke to Dr. Lee Kaplan, director of the Weight Center at Mass General Hospital and associate professor of medicine at Harvard Med School. He defines obesity as a disease because the body doesn't function properly and believes your care should be tailored to your specific needs. When I asked what led to the steady rise in obesity in the last 50 years, he said modernization is most likely the cause. Increased speed of communication, movement, increased stress, change in our food supply and our habits, even sleep deprivation. Up to 50 drugs can influence your weight. In the big picture, we're concerned about obesity because it can cause or worsen up to 225 other diseases. Aside from the obvious like diabetes, hypertension, heart disease and stroke, sleep apnea, it bumps the risk from multiple cancers, including breast and uterine. Why? After menopause, women's normal levels of male hormones are converted to estrogen in fatty tissue. The more fatty tissue, the higher estrogen, which is food for breast and uterine cancer. Obesity may also affect the microbiome, increasing risk for GI cancers like colon cancer. Infertility, if either male or female partner is obese, it can impair fertility. Fatty liver, caused by fat infiltration of the liver, now surpasses hepatitis C as the number one cause for liver transplant. Obesity causes accelerated aging, cognitive decline, makes you more likely to have an accident or fall. Every disease in management is affected by obesity. It may decrease effectiveness of some drugs, may decrease safety of anesthesia or surgery, may decrease the accuracy of some screening tests like a rectal exam or mammogram. Aside from diet and exercise, there are many treatment options available. For the best advice, find a provider with expertise in obesity. Hear the entire show on yourradiodoctor.com. Because divas, you're worth your weight in gold. This is Women to Watch with Sue Rocco, Talk Radio 1210, WPHT. Welcome back to the show. I'm joined this evening by Gail Samak Laman, and Gail is a storyteller and an author. And um, I wanted to talk about um, an award that you won. You received the 2016's award at Harvard for your work in women's entrepreneurship. And I was wondering if that was a pivotal moment for you or kind of a, a time in your life that was impactful where you thought, I'd like to continue to pursue um, this area. You know, I've had the privilege of doing so much work that, that I believe is important. Some of that in storytelling, uh, some of that in the private sector, you know, working on narratives. And I think that that work on women's entrepreneurship at the beginning, you know, people were like, women entrepreneurs in war? Like, wait, wait, is that like the most obscure topic I've ever heard? You know, people were very <laughs> surprised to see it have legs. But the thing is, there were just incredible and are just incredible people behind the topic, right? People starting businesses against incredibly uh, challenging backdrops, against so many obstacles, women who are starting um, translation businesses, women who are starting sustainable fashion businesses, women who are starting uh, water treatment businesses, and just really providing hope and opportunity at such a difficult time. And, you know, the first book I had the privilege of writing, uh, Dressmaker of Karkanaan, was about a teenager whose business supported her family under the toll line. 
So what's remarkable to me when I think about the the challenges that women in the United States have if they want to start a business, and, and I talk to entrepreneurs all the time, they seem so minimal in comparison to the challenges a woman um, in the Middle East is facing, trying to secretly, perhaps, educate herself, start a business that will change the lives of her family and her community. Just... I, I just want to ask you to share words of wisdom around that. How were they able to do that? And what does that teach us? Well, yeah, and I think you have to talk. The Middle East is full of many countries that are very different from one another. And in many of them, women's entrepreneurship is not just being supported, but being actively encouraged by the government. Uh, which is running programs to support women entrepreneurs and, and really pushing that. Um, there are also more difficult contexts, contexts of conflict, where um, it's very difficult for anybody to support their families, let alone uh, women who are working on businesses that are creating hope. And yet, you know, in a couple weeks' time, uh, I'm going to be speaking with uh, two women entrepreneurs, uh, both part of the Syrian diaspora, who have started businesses that are supporting communities. Uh, that they're part of, and, and just to see people um, find hope and economic opportunity and share that with others, I think is so urgent. I, I want to go right to um, your book, The Daughters of Kabani, which is a remarkable story about a group of women who decided to um, go up against ISIS and fight for what they believed is their right to live freely. Um, First, my first question, what, what impressed you the most about these women? What was interesting to me was that, A, we didn't really know them and all their complexity, right? And all their geopolitical complexity and all their human complexity. And yet here they were, you know, really battling ISIS on the front lines, uh, fighting not just for their own neighborhoods, but also for this broader notion of women's equality listening to them was really startling because they went farther than, you know, people in most countries talking about, you know, their people. This was the Kurdish uh, people, right? They, you know, they said the Kurds could not be free until women are free. And I thought just that whole worldview was something we hadn't seen and shouldn't know, given their work fighting the Islamic State for the world. Gail, when I think about the broader picture of what it will do for the world if women are free in every country. What is your belief? What, what, what do you think is the most critical change that would happen globally if women across the board were able to um, not only you know, be free and choose the lives they want, but actually be in positions of leadership? Yeah, listen, I'd start with this country. You don't have to go abroad, Just, but then let's go to every country around the world. Suffocated opportunity is the enemy of global stability. And we are missing out on talent. We are missing out on women who could be leading, on women who could be innovating, on women who could be writing the books that will change the world. You know, look at why it is it that so many books we read are written by men or so many um, positions of power, right? Look at any gathering of global leaders. And by and large, it is still men. Think of all the people we don't hear from and how much poorer we are for it. And I just go back to suffocated opportunity is the enemy of global stability. 
And not only that, when I think about this story, your book, The Daughters of Kabani, why was this story not more in the forefront and well known? Why, why are this, there are people that don't know this story? Well, I think it was also, you know, a very busy news time. So, you know, lots of news outlets covered it in shorter form. But, you know, writing a book is dreadful work. And it does, though, sometimes take a book to gather people's attention for 15 seconds and say, hey, this happened. You know, the NewsHour had done this story. NBC had done this story. Um, New York Times had kind of touched on it. Um, but it, you know, Vice had done, done things on it, but it was really hard to break through. It's hard to capture people's attention and imagination. And that's why long form, whether it's documentary films or whether it's books, right, long form storytelling can still make a difference. Um, actually, th is it this book that's going to be turned into a movie or is presently being worked on? Uh, so both the uh, Daughters of Kobani and Ashley's War, yes. Tell me how you feel about that, <laughs> to, that you're going to be seeing the visual of, yes. of the story you brought. Yeah, it's a real privilege, right? Of course, um, you want everybody to read books. But the reality is when you take on the responsibility of these stories, you promise the people who trust you that you will do justice to them and make sure as many people know them as possible. And I'd love to say that a book will do that. A book can start, but there's nothing like visual medium. And so, you know, it, uh, it's a work in process, <laughs> but both have great teams and uh, very focused on representing uh, voices and making sure that stories are heard and, and seen. Yeah, and has it been, um, so this is your your baby and bringing additional yes. people in to share the story from a visual standpoint. Um, I, I can't imagine you wouldn't come up against different views, how this should be portrayed creatively. How are you dealing with that? Well, you know, I mean, both are still in development, but I would say the thing that you work to do is to work with people who care about authenticity, right? And care about representation and care about inclusivity, care about making sure voices are heard and, Ashley's War, uh, and I think Daughters of Kobani both. You know, Daughters of Kobani, where we, you know, God willing, will have the privilege of working with Kurdish creators uh, on this to make sure that it has the richness and robustness and really captures it, but also, you know, the people whose story it is that want us to come to Kobani. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Shoot, mm. which would be just amazing. Right, how exciting for them. And in Ashley's war, you know, we have... Amazing team, Bruna Papandrea, Reese Witherspoon, you know, who are really, um, you know, they want to get it right. So it's been six years, right, to work on Ashley's War. Wow. Uh, and, and I think it's about getting it right and telling it in a way that we will see, you know, perhaps the first ever, you know, all women military ensemble story mm. on screen um, represent the heart and the guts and the friendship of the people whose story it has the privilege of telling. I can't wait. I can't wait for it. We're going to go into our next break. I'll be back with Gail Samak Laman, storyteller and author. Stay with us for our watch team. 
Now, the women to watch, Military Watch. Hi, I'm Diane Glass, Senior Specialist and Chief of Staff of Military and Veteran Affairs at Comcast NBC Universal. On last week's Military Watch, Carol Eggert spoke about National Hispanic Heritage Month and how, for the military community, it's a time to reflect on the generations of Hispanic American service members who've protected our nation and helped to create a better future for all Americans. I want to continue with that theme today by highlighting Lieutenant Colonel Marisol Chalice, the first Hispanic woman to become a National Guard Black Hawk helicopter pilot. Born and raised in the Dominican Republic, Chalice moved to Massachusetts in 1982. She enlisted in the Army National Guard during high school and was commissioned as an aviation officer in 2001. Chalice noted that when she was in flight school, there were over 3,000 pilots that flew Black Hawks, but only 120 of them were women. Though being in the minority hasn't always been easy, Chalice says that Hispanic American contributions not only add to the diversity of this nation, but also strengthen the American culture. Chalice, who currently serves as the legislative assistant to the vice chief of staff of the U.S. Army, is one of 350,000 Hispanic Americans currently serving in our armed forces, with another 86,000 who serve as DOD civilian employees. Hispanics have and continue to be an important part of our national defense and strength. Comcast NBC Universal is continuing to recognize Hispanic Heritage Month through October 15th, most notably through our Xfinity platform, where we've curated an exclusive collection of bilingual and bicultural movies, TV shows, music, and more. This unique collection of diverse content has been assembled to inspire, educate, and entertain viewers as our nation celebrates this special month together. To access our Hispanic Heritage Month content, Xfinity customers can just say Latino into their bilingual X1 Xfinity voice remote. Hi, Sue Rocco here, host of Women to Watch. Are you a fan of the show? If so, be sure to sign up for our podcast at womentowatch.net so you never miss a show and can listen on your own time. That's women, the number two, watch.net. N-E-T. You're listening to Women to Watch with Sue Rocco on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. Welcome back. If you're just joining us, I'm joined this evening by Gail Samak Laman. And um, Gail is uh, an incredible storyteller and has written several amazing books um, pertaining to women who um, are up against challenges we have no idea uh, what it's like in in countries like Afghanistan. And Gail, one of the things I think is so apparent is that there are a lot of social issues where um, we're trying to solve these problems and money is spent and programs are created and conversations are had. And at the end of the day, at the core is a belief that is really at the heart of the struggle. And I really want to know your opinion, um, because you've seen everything firsthand in these communities where women are up against um, the views of the men who are not only in charge, but want to um, suppress their voice. What is the answer to changing the belief that men have that women belong only in the home? 
You know, I always believe that all change comes from homegrown agents of change. And I'll tell you a story from Dressmaker uh, of Karkana, my first book. Um, Kamala Siddiqui, the protagonist of that story, um, you know, she, the UN had done a gender sensitivity training in the southern Afghanistan. And, you know, Kamala was very nervous, but they asked her to do this as a, you know, to contract. And so she went to lead this and she was very nervous, but she stood up at the front of the room and she said, you know, I come here not as your teacher, but as your sister and your friend here to share what she knows. And she went through this, you know, two days. And at the end, this mullah, who at the time was close to, to Hamid Karzai, said, um, if I could be sure that my daughter would turn out like you, I would send her to school tomorrow. And now that's tragic in that most likely she didn't go to school, but it's also deeply poignant in that it points to what seeing can do. What seeing young women who are part of the community make change can do. It is never about outsiders or foreigners or anything. It is really about a spotlight and a bullhorn for those who are doing the work on the ground. Brave, brave young people, young men and young women who are making the change and doing the work. Can you um, perhaps share with us a personal story? I, there's, you've met so many incredible people and so many women that have inspired you, I'm sure. Is there one that stays really close to your heart that you can tell us about? Oh, so many, you know, and, and my own father, look, my father was uh, born in Baghdad. He became a refugee as a boy. He was the wrong religion to stay in his country, and it very much affected him, I think, forever uh, until he passed, and, but he would never discuss it. And so, I, you know, I'm always very conscious of the, of the fault lines in people's lives, and there was a young woman I met toward the end of working on Daughters of Kobani who... Uh, brother joined ISIS, uh, forced her to marry an ISIS fighter. Beautiful, smart young woman who I think was probably 18 or 19 at the time. She did not want to, but every time she escaped, the brother sent her back to the husband. Uh, ended up going to try to get a divorce. That didn't work. Through a series of events, she ends up in this camp where sexual, where rape is practiced and where she endured, you know, where violence was meted out. And she made her way back to Raqqa, was, you know, incredibly brave, no matter what, but then escaped, right? And another sign of just how brave she was and made her way back home. And then she was there, joined part of this uh, women's protection units. And I said to her, how are you here? You know, what allows you to keep going? And she said, why should anyone have the right to do that to another? And I'm here as a, as a witness, you know, as I'm here as a testament to that. I thought, you know, seeing her courage, her strength, all that she had seen, all that she had endured, and not thinking about her as some superhero, but as an incredibly valiant person who was not letting circumstances determine who she would be, not letting horror determine who she would be. I, mean, I, think, I, I think about her all the time. So tell me how... Um you don't get discouraged. <laughs> Listen, we don't have the luxury of being discouraged. Um, look, I, I have the privilege of being in private sector roles, uh, in serving in, uh, at CFR, Council on Foreign Relations, working on policy. You know, anything I get to do, my job is to think about 
how to make people feel the urgency. And in, in this case, I'm talking about storytelling. You know, think about how brave people are facing such incredible circumstances, such incredible challenges. And if they can get up every day and look life in the face, well, then we have to also. But you, you're human. <laughs> I am very, very. You yeah. are human, and um, as, as much as I think we have our singular mantras for what helps us get through the day, mm. um, I do think there's a level of strength in in individuals, and I wonder, you know, if if you were to to point to a belief, let's say, that you have that allows you to not to really not kind of just fall apart when you see such tragedy what would that be it would go back to where we started this conversation it would go back to my mother my grandmother my aunt and my my aunt is mexican survivor of domestic violence uh ended up working for elizabeth dole in the white house even though she didn't even have a ged uh didn't never went to high school and you know she always said to me never import other people's limitations you know, mm. you keep fighting, you keep mm. fighting and you keep going. And, you know, it goes back to my mother and life is hard. And, and my grandmother, who was a, an independent film distributor at a time that, you know, women many times did not have the chance to work outside the home. And I think growing up around those women just taught me that, of course, you have to keep going and you have to keep going, not just for yourself, but for others who might have less access to to. Um, to others uh, who might be heard less frequently and your job is to to open doors for others and, and to make sure that it's not just new chairs at the table but a new table sounds like you've ha- you really I, I would say it's in your dna if you go back <laughs> generations of the women in your life i think um it's it's really yeah. wonderful we're going to go into our last break and i'll be back with gail samak laman stay with us women to watch Sports Watch. Hey everybody, this is Dr. Jen Welker, and you are listening to Sports Watch. You know, truthfully and and unfortunately, um, in sports we don't put the same resources to girls. Why? Because there aren't often the same end games, which means there aren't the same dollars um, invested in girls' sports in the feeder system, and then all the way up as we saw play out this year in, in March Madness very vividly um, with the NCAA tournament. And we saw the disparities between um, what the girls were given versus what the boys were given. So why would she see that and think that the world is as viable and puts the same value on her sport participation as the boys do? And so we have to be very um, intentional Again, and I will use that word over and over. You'll hear me say it because she isn't going to naturally be socialized as easy into some of these situations as the boys are. So moms and dads, let's be active and proactive in creating the situations where she is coached, mentored, trained in the same way as the boys are. And then the end game become more visible and more viable in terms of what she sees and how women are paid on all playing fields so that her dreams aren't just a dream. They're actually a reality that makes sense and that she is an instrument to success as opposed to being shown 
that the best way for a woman to be is to be the accessory to the success of someone else. Follow me and all my adventures, or you can say misadventures, on Welter47 on Instagram or at jwelter47 on Twitter. Now, more of Women to Watch with Sue Rocco on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. Welcome back to the show. I'm Sue Rocco, and I'm having a really wonderful conversation with Gail Samak Laman. Um, Gail's shared incredible stories again um, and, and written several books um, that are going to be turned into a movie, which I cannot wait to see because I'm just so inspired uh, by women who come from places that um, face such great challenges um, compared to our lives here in the U.S. I-, I wanted to know, Gail, if you're a spiritual person, if you rely on any spirituality. Yeah, you know, I, I actually, um, it's something I think I've always been thinking through, but absolutely, you know, my mother was a deep person of deep faith, and I absolutely am, I think, potentially less tied to formal religion, but very much tied to faith and a belief in um how we treat others and a, a faith that, you know, we must, you know, as Kamala's dad always said, you do as much as you can for as many as you can for as long as you can uh, and fall short all the time. But I think it is all bound together for me and absolutely faith plays a role. Do you think that you are, um, as a writer, that you are where you're meant to be? It's a question I think we all ask ourselves all the time, right? You know, and, yeah. uh, and also in private sector work, right? Uh, and, and executive in a tech startup and in national security. It's like, you know, are you doing work that matters? Are you doing work that is going to have uh, an impact? And, and that can never be a static question. Or work think- that brings you joy. You know, mm-hmm. one of the yeah. things I say when, when I'm talking to young people and they're trying yeah. to figure out, yeah. I think it's important to ask ourselves, what, what are we doing when we feel the most joyful? And yeah. that can sometimes help us guide to the right career. Tell, tell our listeners about the work that you're doing um, as an advisor, uh, National Security. Can you? Oh, <laughs> A little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah. Sure, sure. So I've had the privilege of working in, in some uh, several emerging uh, tech for national security uh, startups looking at bringing how technology can help people see more, right? Those who serve and protect uh, service members. That's important work, certainly. Yeah. 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 Tell me where you go for inspiration for Mm -hmm. your next project or story. Oh, gosh. I mean, in terms of inspiration, I'm always inspired by people who are, as, as they said in, in Daughters of Kobani, people who are rewriting the rules that govern their lives. Mm-hmm. You know, this one young woman said to me, we're writing our own history now. And I think about that a lot because just because something has always been doesn't mean it has to be. And especially when it comes to women's lives, there is so much injustice and there's so much structural injustice that we really have to think about that. And I think we're doing that across the board, right? Why should rules I had no hand in writing curb the opportunity set that I access? And I think that is something that animates me across the board. Yeah, and from the beginning, right? I mean, when you think about injustice um, for women, it's from the beginning of time, right. right? So do you see a shift? Is there a shift happening? Slowly, but only slowly. 
many people, I think, would like to say that things are really moving and things are really changing. Uh, I believe the evidence comes when we see women leading. I believe the evidence comes when we see uh, changes that affect uh, women's lives actually um, making playing fields level when girls can access education at the same rates, when girls can access, um, uh, you know, capital at the same rates, when young women can decide whom they marry and when, right? I've done a lot of work on child marriage. Um, and I think about all the loss, you know, the next Maya Angelou, the next Steve Jobs, the next Andrew Noy that we lose when girls, others people decide for girls that 15 is marriage age and that's the end. So it's that, it's looking at equity from the start. You know, um, that's one been one of the most difficult things in preparing for this interview and reading about your work. Child marriage, just, I can't even, you know, let my mind go there. Yeah. Um, but yet what, what you know, you've brought forth is, is the resilience that these women have. What does it do to a young girl? Well, just think about, you know, I, I've never, I, I had a debate with the European diplomat many moons back who said, you know, Gail, we don't need to touch child marriage. That's not a topic for us to tackle. I said, really? Because if an 11-year-old girl knows that she should not be marrying someone a decade her senior whom she does not want to marry, then shouldn't you, with all the benefits of water and power and light and education and fancy rooms and fancy schooling, know that too? Good question. Right? I mean, yeah. this is about... Unbelievable. It has an economic impact, a security impact, a climate impact, all of this. And we still see it as a women and girls issue. And that is deeply incorrect because it is uh, a stability and security and prosperity uh, issue for us all. Gail, do you ever have um, thoughts about entering politics, going <laughs> into a place where you can, you know, change some of yes, the rules? I, I do. I do. I, I do think you think have. The, I think you have the chutzpah to do it. <laughs> uh, yes, I, I do. I mean, but also having covered politics, you know, the meat grinder that it is. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you have to really think about that. Uh, I do, though. I, I deeply believe in and service. I also believe in. You know, people who come from places I come from don't often get uh, heard in the same way, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I, you know, look fancy now and I fancy credentials and all that stuff. But, you know, um, I definitely understand what it's like when the structures are not in your favor. And it's very important for us to spread opportunity, period. That is an urgent work for all of us right now. My last question, tell me what you've learned about yourself um, by doing this work. Uh, I've learned that testing yourself brings you both joy and grounding. Um, it's not about whether you're scared or not. It's about what you do with your fear. And it's about looking, I think, fear in the face back to where we started, which is something my mother taught me when I was, you know, 10. Um, I, this interview has been so full of um, wisdom and uh, hopefully some enlightenment for our listeners. And I, I appreciate you sharing your story with us. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to join you. 
That's it, everyone, for another week of Women to Watch. Stay tuned next week for my conversation with founder and owner of Skoog Communications, Melissa Skoog. Have a great week, everyone, and thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Women to Watch with Sue Rocco, a Jacob Media production. If you're interested in learning more about the power of the radio hour, contact Joe Kraus at 267-261-3428. This program is a paid commercial announcement and does not reflect the views of WPHD or its management. Today's program has been pre-recorded. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.